The Colorado Equals Security Podcast is your local source for regional security news, local events, and interviews with key individuals in the region. Now, here are your hosts, Rob Reck and Alex Wood. Welcome to Colorado Equal Security. This is the newscast for episode 35 for the week of October 2nd. Uh, Alex, last week was Denver Startup Week. We have a couple of news articles from there, but we also had our panel. How, how did it go? I thought it went really well. Um, you know, it was uh, you and me and uh, Joe Bennell, who was uh, a participant, participant and moderator. Yeah. Uh, we had maybe... I don't know, eighty people. Yeah, hundred. It, it was a pretty. Some, it was a pretty full room. Yeah, uh, we had ninety minutes to talk about yes. uh, about security and compliance for small businesses. And it was it was an interesting topic. A lot of audience participation. Yeah, we managed to to make it through with a uh, without a lot of preparation and you know uh, some good answers. Yeah, it's funny. You know, as much as us as security people, we think about security. It felt to me like most of the people there were thinking more about compliance and and what did they need to do for their business uh, to be able to you know, operate in the markets where they wanted to work. Yeah, I, th- I think it was interesting. You know, Joe kind of took that that tack at the beginning, talking a lot about compliance. And it to me at first, it was like, well, why are we talking about compliance? But everybody was totally into that. Yeah. They, they all wanted to hear about compliance and, and that, that was yeah. interesting. Well, let's go ahead and, and jump into the news. As a reminder, we do have a we are on Google Play and the iTunes Store. You can listen to us on SoundCloud, of course, as well. But if you subscribe, you get it weekly right into your uh, podcast player. Uh, we'd appreciate your reviews and and your ratings on the on the stores, and hopefully that'll help us get some new listeners. So, and we are now official and have a rating on iTunes. Yeah, so go check and, it out. And you won't know what our rating is unless you check it out, right? Exactly. All right, well, let's dive into the news. Speaking of Denver Startup Week, there was a kind of one of the big stories this week was we had Mark Cuban in town doing a panel with Charlie Ergen that was moderated by Brad Feld, uh, really talking about innovation and uh, and what it was like to reinvent yourself after being successful for quite a while. Yeah, and uh, I think one of the sort of sub headlines of the the story was that you know Mark Cuban made some incendiary remarks about the the president, but um, called him a Twitter troll, right? Yeah, well. You know, it, yeah, pot calling the kettle black, I guess. So, uh, so, but you know, Brad Feld was on our show a few months ago, right? So, kind of yep. cool to get to see, you know, one degree of separation between us and the big wigs there on the stage. Uh, pretty fun. It's also uh, cool when a few billionaires show up and just have a chat. So, yeah, that part too. Um, another big piece of news in the uh, Denver community this week: we were named one of the seventeen entrepreneurial engines that power our nation. Yeah, that was pretty cool. Um, as part of this. Uh, the Indiana-based Lumina Foundation um, is targeting some grants towards Denver, $350,000 in grants towards education uh, beyond the high school level. So that's pretty cool. Yeah, we don't know exactly what that means. How do we get the, those dollars? Where are they going to go? Um, but, you know, it, pretty cool that we've been targeted as one of those places that help America grow, and we're looking forward to hearing more. There is a list of the other 16 talent hubs um, you know, a lot of places you'd expect. And of course, Austin is on the list, just like every other list that Denver is on. Yeah, there are a few in there also that I was a little bit surprised at, like Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, you know, nothing against yeah. Oklahoma. but Fresno, I w- California. I, I would not have put the either of those on the list of, yeah. um, you know, cool happening entrepreneurial places. Uh, Racine, Wisconsin. Hey, yeah, you know, that's one I wouldn't have thought of. Exactly. Yeah. Good stuff. Uh, so next, uh, there was an article in the, the Business Journal about... Business advantages of blockchain smart contracts. So uh, this was just sort of giving a primer of Ethereum and the way that you can use Ethereum to make smart contracts. Yeah, this is really one of the the difference makers, I think, for the new technologies that distributed ledger t- technology, which is what you know 
blockchain is part of. And uh, the idea that rather than having to trust when Alex tells me, hey, you know, when you lose $20 or 20 pounds, I'm going to give you $100. We can write it into a contract that if I, if I do it and I can prove it, automatically he has to pay and it's built into the technology. And that's really what these smart contracts get into, enforcing te- contracts by technology. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I've seen some stories also about how th- there can be loopholes that you don't think of. You know, you write some sort of condition and something happens. Well, that condition might get met in a way that you don't expect. Right. So the contract can execute in a way that was not intended. So you have to, I think, put a little bit more thought into how you're writing these contracts as well. Yeah, and you still need some kind of arbiter, some kind of uh, trustworthy source for whether a condition is met. Because not every condition is as simple as, you know, a stock price reaches an amount, which the stock, you know, which which is right. data that you can get from a feed. Anyway, interesting stuff and, and kind of a, a good article for folks to get a primer on, on uh, where blockchain technology is going to take contracts in the future. Or a primer even. Uh, well, if you want to say it wrong, yeah, I'll give you a primer. Uh, Route 9B, so we've been waiting on this news for a couple of months, right? Route 9B this last week actually got acquired. So their their asset sale was scheduled for the 28th of September. Uh, and that same day, they took the auction down and ended up being sold to a capital company called Tracker Capital Management. Yeah, and so uh, they're going to take over Route 9B Route 9B will now be completely separate from Route 9B Holdings, mm-hmm. which was the previous parent holding company. So the holding company is a public company with stock traded on NASDAQ. Uh, after they the holding company sold off Route 9B to Tracker Management Capital, Capital Management, um, they had to actually tr- pause trading on the holding company as they're trying to figure out what does this actually mean? And, you know, are, is, are the stockholders hold- for the holding company going to get the payout for this? We, we just don't know all those answers yet. Yep. What we do know is it looks like the same management team that's been running Route 9B is going to stay in place with a new organization. Um, and while the, um, you know you don't know if there's going to be any layoffs at all, it sounds like largely the company is going to exist doing the same type of work with the same people doing it. So good news for those people who are, who are getting their livelihood from Route 9B and for those who depend on them as customers. Exactly. Uh, so next, uh, CyberGRX was named one of Denver's six gazelles. So so gazelles, every year, um, this is kind of a part of Denver Startup Week, uh, they name the city's list of rapidly growing companies that show the most potential for raising money and creating jobs in Denver. Um, so very cool to see a security company on the list again. I know Den- uh, Ping Identity has been on the list before. I'm sure some of the other big companies have. But really cool to see CyberGRX recognized there. Yeah, I mean, you know, we talk a lot about how Denver's a great startup town. But even at that, having a security company on one of these fastest growing lists is really cool. Yeah. So uh, next there was an an article, um, an interview, actually a video interview on the Logarithm blog with Sarah Avery. Um, we've talked about Sarah, I think a couple times on the show. She has helped organize the women in security group within ISSA. And this is sort of a brief glimpse into sort of her day and things that she does. She talks a little bit about women in security and, and other things like that. Yeah. She talks about the mission there. Really, uh, women in security is not just to help with women who are in security, but really to get exposure for girls and, you know, in school, junior high, high school, high school, junior high, um, get them exposed to security and help them see that as a viable path. She makes the the very bold cl- uh, claim that her goal is to get women to at least 50% representation in security, which, which is awesome, right? What a great, what a great goal. I'm looking yeah. forward to, to seeing some success there. Um, next we have a, a blog post, which is a kind of a introduction to the new CEO at Webroot, Mike Potts. He took over, I think his first week was actually last week, the, the 
whatever that was, the, the 24th, whatever, last Monday. Um, uh, so he wrote a blog post here to let us know really what his mission is at Webroot. Uh, you know, I, I won't go into a lot of detail summarizing what he had to say, but take a look at it. He says he's going to focus on t- reaching out to customers, uh, automating and, and really scaling the processes they have and investing in new technology. Awesome. Uh, Alchemy Security had an announcement about their cybersecurity continuous monitoring uh, solution. So we mentioned Joe Bunnell earlier as part of our Startup Week panel. Uh, Joe is the CEO of Alchemy Security, and they had a, a press release this week about uh, using Splunk as sort of the back end for their um, their continuous monitoring um, SOC uh, services that they offer. Yeah. Well, so Joe, Joe does some really cool stuff there. If you're looking for a personal touch for outsourced security services, he'd be a good one to reach out to. Uh, our last article from the news was a blog post by Ping uh, talking about whether it makes sense to use SMS for two-factor for your customers. It's really it kind of an interesting thing to think about. Um, generally speaking, we think about two-factor for like our workforce users, right? You know, you know, as the CISO of a company, you think about making sure your your employees are using two-factor to get access to corporate resources. But it's a little different when you're talking about consumers or customers who are using your products, who you can't tell them what they you know have to install on their on their laptop or their phone, and how do you get two-factor out to those? Uh, so this blog goes through a couple different options: SMS. What are the down downfalls of it? But what are the benefits? You know, everyone has a phone. Everyone uses SMS these days. The, the drawbacks are that it's not as secure. And they, there's some other options where you can embed two-factor into a mobile app. Anyway, interesting interesting perspective on it. Yeah, and I think, you know, with two-factor authentication, there's lots of ways to do the second factor, um, you know, whether it's a biometric, whether it's a, you know, an app on your phone, whether it's SMS two-factor. And I think, you know, the most important thing is to look at that particular situation and then see which one makes sense to you. Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and dive into events. As a reminder, we do have two things. We have a store on our webpage. If you want to get some Colorado Equal Security swag, we'd love to have you guys, uh, we'd love to walk around town and see someone wearing the logo, right? Uh, number two, we have an event calendar on the website, colorado-security.com, showing a lot of events. I'll tell you, as I went and added events late last week, probably added 20 different things. There was a ton of stuff coming up through the end of the year. Um, so take a look at what's coming out further in the future, but we'll go through the next two weeks right now. Uh, first, uh, Densec is doing their South Meetup on the 2nd of October. Uh, ISSA Colorado Springs has a professional networking event on the 5th. On the 6th, Coal Fire is doing a high trust community extension program. On the 10th, uh, the October OWASP Denver Joint Meeting with the SANS DevOps Summit. So this is you know the general OWASP meeting, but they're combining with another group. Uh, looks like interesting content. Hopefully you guys can join them on the 10th. Uh, also on the 10th and 11th are the ISSA Denver October chapter meetings. On the 12th is ISACA's monthly meeting. Uh, and, and those are, that takes us through the end of events for the next couple of weeks. There are some interesting stuff coming out in November, especially take a look at the calendar for the first couple of weeks of, of November. You know, we've got the CTA, uh, apex awards. We've got the, uh, uh, the cloud security alliances fall summit, um, the, the governors with the NCC governors consortium meeting, a lot of cool stuff coming up there. So make sure you set your calendars for that. Uh, I will say also on that, the OWASP one, you know, they're doing it in, in uh, joint with, with uh, SANS, but SANS is having their DevOps summit and training here. So if you are interested in um, learning more about security and DevOps, um, they do have, it's sort of a conference as well as normal SANS mm-hmm. classes on uh, DevOps and security that's happening. Right, we'll go ahead, let's go ahead and jump into jobs here. 
So first, um, Digital First Media is looking for a cybersecurity director. Now, that looks like you would be running the security program for Digital First Media, which I hadn't heard of before, but has a lot of different media outlets. And they say they have 75 million readers each month. So pretty good reach for that organization. Ball Aerospace is hiring a cybersecurity operations lead. IntelliSecure is looking for a cybersecurity intelligence expert. Oppenheimer Funds is hiring a cybersecurity engineer. eFolder is looking for a security engineer. Excel Energy is hiring a senior analyst threat intelligence job. I don't know why the word job is thrown on at the <laughs> end, but that's kind of fun. Uh, Frontier Airlines is looking for a senior network security engineer. Vantive is hiring a network security architect. And uh, I know Mike Morato, who is probably the hiring manager for that job over there at Vantive. So if, you, uh, if you're interested in that one, let me know. I can probably make an introduction. Uh, Edgelink is looking for a robotic network security architect. So humans need not apply? Is that, is that where right. we are? Yeah. Maybe so, cyborgs? Does that count? Uh, I, I assume if there's any robotics involved, you're probably okay to apply. All right. Yeah. Uh, then we do have two positions here for companies hiring uh, pre-sales engineers. Ping Identity is hiring a pre-sales solutions engineer. And then Swimlane is hiring a security solutions engineer. So if you want to work up in Boulder and, and work for a security automations and orchestration company or in Denver for an IAM company, those are a couple of good options there. And that's all the jobs that we have. That's it for the news this week. Uh, we have our feature interview with Mary Haynes. Mary is the VP of C cybersecurity for Charter Communications here in town. Had a really good conversation with her a couple weeks ago, uh, understanding how, how she's been in telco for quite a while and kind of the, the change over the last decade or so of what the job looks like and, and really sharing where she thinks it's going to go in the future. Yeah, I look forward to that one. I like Mary a lot. Cool. All right, Alex, we'll have a great week and we'll talk to you next, next weekend. Thanks, Rob. This is David McGuire, uh, Director of IT Security at QEP Resources. This is Colorado Equals Security. For Colorado security professionals, by Colorado security professionals. Welcome to Colorado Equals Security. This is Rob Reck, and I'm very fortunate today to have in my, my very own home in the studio for Colorado Equals Security, uh, Mary Haynes, one of the uh, great leaders of security here in Colorado. Mary, I've got to know you over maybe last two years or so? Probably so. Um, and is that about when you moved to Colorado? I moved to Colorado exactly four years ago. Four years ago. Awesome. Exactly. And, and from uh, from Kansas City. Right? Kansas City. I see she's holding a uh, Kansas City Chiefs Go today. Chiefs. Woohoo. Um, so not going to make you real popular in the Colorado <laughs> Equal Security <laughs> community. Uh, um, but let's uh, let's chat about your background. So I, we, you and I, as before we started the interview, we're just talking a little bit about uh, recent current events. Um, but what I don't know is exactly how did you start getting your career and how did you get into security? Ah, well, that's kind of interesting. I actually started 32 years ago in the communications industry. I got a job at AT&T as a customer service rep. Yeah. And I did that because I wanted a Monday through Friday, eight to five job. Prior to that, I'd been in retail, managing retail stores. And um, I was young and single. So I got this job in customer service and worked my way up into management. Yeah. So, and so customer service, you were taking phone calls, people complaining about what? Uh, That's what we always get, right? Well, it was right after divestiture, right after the Bell companies had diversed and mm -hmm. AT&T was on its own. So customers calling about their bills, wanting to know rates for long distance yeah. calls, that kind of thing. Awesome. Okay, go ahead. Sorry. And so um, uh, eventually I got into a leadership development program 
And um, in that program, I was identified as having a high technical aptitude. I also had been exposed to Unix and loved doing things in Unix. And so they needed more women in technology. And I literally got plucked to go be in the the network security organization at yeah. AT&T. And that was about, about 25 years ago. Wow, that's pretty good. So you've been in, in telecom well, you you started in telecom a long time ago, right? And obviously, you're you're still in telecom now. So, right. as you went into the networking area, how how did that manifest itself, and what what kind of stuff did you get to do? Well, I was brought in because I had a Unix background, and back then there were no tools to determine if Unix was secure or not. Mm-hmm. It was actually something Bell Labs was starting to look at, and my first assignment was to come in and take Unix systems, and we're talking, this was Unix System Five. And so that's how old it was. And my job was to manually go through a system and figure out if I thought there were any security holes. Hmm. And after doing that for about a year or so, I thought, this is really crazy. Can't someone like write a program that could do this more automated? Yeah. And so they hooked me up with a couple of Bell Labs guys. We created what I would call the very first configuration auditing software. Hmm. Um, We called it the um, uh, SWAN. And um, it was the watchdog, the security watchdog analysis tool. Nice. And it was specifically designed for Unix, and it worked really well. Um, we started rolling it out to all of our systems so I could get an automated view of what I considered security holes or misconfigurations. Yeah. And um, with you know, then of course Windows was starting to become really big about then. So then we designed it for Windows, and we patented it, and it's the basis of a lot of uh, security auditing functionality today. So you were you were one of the first people to create a really long list of work for the sysadmins to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that they yeah. never got through. Yeah, yeah. but it, I fell in love with security. I when I joined AT and T's security team, they had some amazing security engineers. Some of the guys that worked on the very first firewalls for the government had developed some of the very first security technologies. So when I walked in, this girl from a call center environment, I was in awe Hmm. with all these smart guys I was working with. And I think that's what got me so energized to be in this industry. Yeah. So, so you're talking like early nineties at this point when you're, when you're doing this hardening, it's interesting because we've had a couple of folks on the show, uh, Brian Martin, um, and uh, Chris Nickerson, who had, in the early '90s were were breaking into systems like like right. yours to to basically to learn is right. what it sounds like. Did you have any any run-ins with with not necessarily those guys, but that type? You know, the the the, the hackers who were trying to get access to the systems or you know do phishing or excuse me, uh, uh, freaking, trying to use your phone systems to make you know, free calls. I knew about the freaking, um, yeah. you know, and I uh, to be honest. It was a real mind shift for me because um, I'm a good Catholic girl, grew up, you know, (laughs) going to parochial schools. And it was a real mind shift for me to move from being a very customer service oriented, helpful person to have the mindset of someone might be attacking me. Mm. And, um, you know, it took a long time. I I couldn't believe why anybody would want to do that. Um, But then as I started to exploring well you know someone could do this or someone could do that and if they did do that so I saw myself those first couple of years take a complete different mind shift I didn't really run into people doing that personally I just heard the stories yeah. about it so yeah, interesting so so go ahead and take me a little further forward you got the you got your system and out kind of vulnerability scanner running right. in and use right. that for a while what was next after that um, so, you know, obviously I, when I joined that team, I was the only girl. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. I remember going to my very first meeting, and um, it was in New Jersey, and I was based in Kansas City. And, and I had a coworker that when I got hired, he got hired too. And we were going out to New Jersey for our very first staff meeting. And I remember walking into a room and opening up the conference room door, and we were late because we'd just traveled in that morning, and peeking in and seeing this room of all these men. And I thought, oh, I'm in the wrong place. Shut the door, and and Bill's like, no, Mary, I, I think this is the right room. So I opened up the door again, and they said, are you Mary? Well, obviously, I'm the only girl in the group. They were expecting yeah. me to be showing up. And um, it's like, yes. And so, uh, you know, here I'm in this organization with, you know, all guys. And as we started working together and had been there about a year or so, I think they really realized I brought a whole different skill set than anybody else did. This is when we were trying to create our first security assessment methodologies. Um, We were really trying to look at security more as a business versus I'm just a tech geek and, and it's all about you know, finding holes and vulnerabilities. And so I brought in with me a lot of management skills and a lot of process skills. I'd been a Malcolm Baldrige quality facilitator. I had gotten our call centers to be quality certified. And so the leadership began to recognize that. Hmm. And so then I started leading a whole lot of, you know, process. How can we build processes? Not just go out and do something, but, you know, how could we like, write security policies and and have a process to govern those policies. And with that, that kind of moved me into management positions and leadership positions. So these guys that I used to be in awe of, now all of a sudden were working for me Hmm. because I could take on those management responsibilities that they had no interest, no interest at all in doing and really help build the organization. So, you know, I spent several years at AT AT&T um, and then in 2000, AT&T was going through um, an opportunity where 50% of the employees could leave the company. Hmm. And it was a voluntary option. And I put in for that because my kids were in middle school. Yeah. And I thought, wow, this would be great to take a year off. And it was a great package. Um, I'm going to take a year off, take this package, go back to school, get a few more technical classes behind my belt. And um, I didn't get the offer. I was considered too critical hmm. at that point. And that pissed me off. <laughs> I said, great. My boss took it. And so right after I found out he took it, um, I told him, well, I'm taking another opportunity. Yeah. So I eventually left there, went to a CLEC. Um, What's a CLEC? A CLEC is considered is called a competitive local exchange company. So in right around the late 90s, you know, it used to be only a Bell company could be a local exchange company. And companies like AT&T and MCI were fighting that. So the laws changed and, and it created a new business opportunity where people could create their own local exchange companies. It ended up being pretty much a failed business model. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't really hear of Celex today. There are still a few of them out there. Um, but I was attracted with a lot of IPOs to come over to this new CLEC that they were building in Kansas City. Yeah. And walked in, knew that was a disaster right as soon as I walked in. So I did eventually leave and go to Sprint. And if people look at my resume, they'll think I changed jobs a lot, but I really haven't because then I went through lots of mergers and acquisitions, ended up at CenturyLink, leading the security team at CenturyLink. But that was all through mergers and acquisitions. Mm. Um, I technically never changed companies or lost my service. It's just 
Sprint spun off their local telephone division they, and created a company called Embark. They needed somebody to lead the cybersecurity team for Embark, so I did that. Then CenturyTel came in and bought us and um, made it a company called CenturyLink. And then CenturyLink came and bought Quest and made it an even bigger CenturyLink. Um, and so through all those mergers and acquisitions, I continued to to lead and build and grow the security organization through the, those mergers yeah. and acquisitions. The uh, Quest one, when we bought Quest, you know that was they have a huge security team, right. and it was based in here in Denver, Colorado, and that's when I fell in love with Denver, Colorado. Mm. So when I started coming out here all the time for business meetings and to meet with the team. That's when I was like, wow, this is a really cool city. Yeah. And my whole long-term retirement plan of moving to Florida was now, maybe I'd like to do Colorado's in the summer and Florida in the winter with a couple of ski trips thrown in there. Yeah. So um, that's what made me start looking at Colorado. Um, I uh, was kind of tired of all the mergers and acquisitions and the whole telco business. And um, it's it's stressful going through a merger and acquisition if you've been through one. So I actually left CenturyLink mm. and took a CSO job at our local electric company. Because mm. I thought in 2012... So that was in, in Kansas City you did in this? In Kansas City. Yeah. You know, Ted Koppel's talking about how the, the smart grid is the biggest risk we have in right. the country. And it sounded like the exciting place to be from a security standpoint. And so I went over there. My a good friend of mine from CenturyLink had taken the CIO job, and and so she really recruited me hard to come over to the electric company. And I thought that would be really exciting from a security standpoint. But what I learned, you know, I learned a lot about the electric business. And um, what I learned is most of it's not IP enabled, hmm. and it's all in air gapped networks. And you know, there while there is threats. I was actually spending most of my time doing physical security. Hmm. It's right around when the Sandy Hook event occurred. Um, there were other active shooter situations. So I was in copper theft was really big. Hmm. We actually had two instances where people trying to steal their copper theft, um, they actually died because they got live wire. Ugh. So they were electrocuted. And I was spending 80% of my time dealing with physical security, which yeah. is not my passion. Right. So I started looking for other opportunities, um, found this at Charter, and um, and it was in Denver, Colorado, hmm. and I knew I knew it's what I wanted to do. So I'm back in mergers and acquisitions again. Yeah. Because um, so we've acquired yeah, what was the quite big, a few. What was the big uh, acquisition you guys had since you started at Charter? So the big one, we've had several, but the biggest one was last year we acquired Time Warner Cable yep. and also Bright House Networks. So those are two, obviously Time Warner Cable was the second largest cable operator. Yeah. So now I work for a Fortune 100 company, um, second largest cable operator in the U.S. Um, and uh, the fastest growing cable operator yeah. in, the, in the world right now. And, and we were talking a little bit before that, you know, you're, you're running, are you running all of the security functions for Charter or is there, is there another team that does some of the different stuff? That's a really good question because we have a really unique business model yeah. at Charter. Um, we, I, I say it's, a, it's the three-legged stool. So there's really three of us that run security. Um, we do not have anybody that has a CSO title or a CISO title. Um, I run the network security. So that means as a cable provider, 
I'm responsible for the security of our video services, your cable box and all of that, your voice services, if you subscribe to our voice services, and then our high-speed internet, the, the pipe that connects you to everything, right? Yeah. Um, a peer of mine um, runs the IT enterprise security group. So I don't have to worry about Active Directory or any of that, although we share tools because, you know, anyone knows something that happens on your corporate network could bleed over into your service delivery network. Um, And then I have another peer who runs what I call the traditional corporate security. Mm -hmm. Um, She has an FBI background um, from out of D.C. She recently joined our company. And so she has all the physical security. Executive protection. Yep, all of that. And then we have a governance model. So we have what's called operational steering committees and executive steering committees. So once a month, the three of us come together and put together basically a readout. We, we present it as a security program. Hmm. And we come together and monthly read out to all the business units who are part of our operational steering committee. Um, what's happening? You know, what are our biggest incidents? Um, what are the things we've done to improve our security posture? Um, what's the status of where we're going? Um, what does our vulnerability management results look like? And then we also usually about a week later, then meet with the executive steering committee, which is our tier one leaders. Yeah. Um, so everybody has a visibility into what's going on into security. And then every probably three months or so, we meet with Tom Rutledge, who's our CEO, and give him a summary of what's happened in the past quarter. So it's it's interesting. People, you know, a lot of people question how, um, you know, governance by committees really works it can be challenging. Um, it's a model I've never had done before. I really struggled with it when I first got to Charter. And there was a lot of pushing and pulling between me and the IT security team. Um, we've got our groove now. Yeah. Um, like right now we're dealing with a couple of things going on. Like there's an incident. Um, people probably remember um, a few years ago the shootings that occurred in Ferguson, Missouri. Yeah, where you know young black men were were killed by police officers, and there were a couple of events. And when that was all happening, Anonymous was very active hmm. during all that. Mm-hmm. So not only were all those protests going on in the streets, and um, you know businesses were burning in protest, etc., but also Anonymous was attacking the police stations, the court systems, the the police officers' homes, tons of DDoS attacks. Mm. So that was a coordinated attack in many ways. And so I had to work very, very closely with the physical security people who were trying to patrol the streets, protect our employees, protect our facilities, while I'm trying to protect our customers who could be, you know, a victim of a DDoS attack. Yeah. And sometimes those DDoS attacks were so big that it was affecting more than just the target you know, right. the dang router that served the whole community was being impacted. And it could cause major outages in neighborhoods. So it's it's interesting how closely we have to work together. My yeah. world is not just a pure cyber world. And I, I have to work really closely with both of my other legs of the yeah. stool. So I have a couple of uh, maybe in the weeds questions for you about the committees. As This is something I think about a lot. Uh, so you say you meet once a month. How, how long do those meetings last? About an hour. And, and how many folks do you have, attendees do you have there? Oh, probably about 20, 25. 
So pretty good sized group. What is the is the intention of that meeting to get feedback from them or just to to download information to them or something else? What what's the purpose? Both. So one is to keep them informed of what was going on, also to provide direction and guidance, and then third, um, they have a voting. Uh, role. So as we introduce new policies and standards, they all have to be approved by the OSC and the ESC. And then they all have to review and, and have an overall vote on any exceptions to security policies. So when you, you say policy, do you mean policy? Do you mean standards? Do you mean procedures? What, what's a policy? What would they be voting on? So a policy would be that everyone needs to have a unique user ID. Yeah. And then the standard would get into much more detail. And the ID can only be used for this. And you've got to have a password. Right. And the password has to be eight characters. Those would fall under standards. So no one's ever going to disagree. Yeah, we all need a unique user ID, right? But then, because they're all, oh, yeah, that makes sense. And then when you get into the standard and then they, all of a sudden they start to realize the implications of that mean, well, that process I've been using for a decade is going to break. That's it, that's where the, those people's putting their hand up starts to add some real value, right? Right. And I will have to say, um, our executives are really, really supportive of security. And I've actually, in just the four years, seen a paradigm change. Hmm. Um, You know, again, we service millions of customers and millions of customers have to use our internet and our voice and video services. Um, And when I first came in, I had lots of concerns about, you know, how customers authenticated, um, what we used for security questions, um, how we treated customer passwords. And I was like, but we got to keep it convenient to customers. We can't generate calls to the call centers. And that was the attitude when I walked in four years ago. Yeah. Now it has completely shifted. Even my customer care organization is putting security people within their organization to help promote all the principles and standards we're trying to create and they've understood the value you know as as we're now doing our plans for multi-factor authentication for our customers um, they're very very supportive and are helping me drive these things because they've really realized how this is going to impact their customers and our customers expect everything to be secure they don't want to have to worry that they've got malware on their computers most of them don't understand it and they assume the ISP is just taking care of all that and it wasn't, our executives did not have that view four years mm. ago. Now they have that view. It's our responsibility to take care of security for our customers. Yeah. We're responsible for, for providing a safe and secure internet experience is now our mission. That's great. That's really neat. Uh, so what are your, obviously that's your big, your big uh, charter. What are the hot, the key strategic things you're doing either, you know, throughout the rest of 2017 or looking at 2018, what are you, what are the projects you're going to be working on to help drive toward your charter? So keep in mind when I came four years ago, there was nobody doing what I was doing. I was technically employee number one for network security. Hmm. We really prior to that only had an IT security group. And then we had a few people responsible for physical security. So nobody was looking at the security of the service delivery network except for those engineers that provided the services. And to be real, to be real, I don't think they ever thought security was their responsibility. Hmm. So I had to start the program from ground zero. Um, and so some of the things you I may talk about, you'll think, well, I would have expected that to be there already. Like one of our big initiatives is 
putting in centralized identity management for all of these back-end systems that support the voice, video, and high-speed network. Um, today, each one of the teams manage their own. Um, and through a, a NIST cybersecurity risk, using the NIST cybersecurity framework, um, we've identified risks. Yeah. And um, leadership truly believes we need a centralized identity management. And in the telecom space, you know, you the only place you really saw that was around your network devices, TACAX, Cisco yeah. TACAX. Yeah. And um, I now need to go way beyond that. I need to look at all these video devices. I need to look at all these voice infrastructure devices. How does DNS play into it? And I need to take away that management from these teams that have probably created some problems for us and move it into a technology that can be centrally managed. We can utilize one identity and authoritative source for that identity. And really get control. So that's that's one big initiative, along with making sure that it's not just a password to get in, because mm-hmm. um, these these are considered this is considered critical infrastructure. Yeah, you know we serve a lot of critical utilities and businesses and and so forth. And so we're we're applying all of the um, uh, FedRAMP um, rules to it, even though we're not FedRAMP required. Hmm. Um, it's a good standard that in the eight hundred fifty three yeah. for what we need. Network anomaly detection is a big one for us. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been doing a lot of evaluations around that and are about ready to implement something. And then cloud security. Sure. Um, when I got there, we already had a lot of our business out in the cloud, in the public cloud, with our own private clouds in it. And um, there was an assumption that, oh, they take care of security. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> and, and and I've always come from a traditional environment. I had never dealt with cloud security yeah. until I got here. So that was a challenge for me because now I had to understand what did they do yeah. and what should we do. It's a do. big learning curve. It is yeah. a big learning curve. And it was before people were actually doing presentations on here's AWS's responsibilities and here's yeah. your responsibility. Um, I think AWS was just coming out with a document on that. Yeah. And and now, you know, people talk about it all the time. But um, then I had to then help educate the business. Oh, no, they're not yeah. taking care of that. And, and I have no visibility from a security standpoint. And these are all of our customer portals. Yeah. Um, and um, so we've been spending a lot of time, and we, we will continue to spend more time just really making that a tight, tight environment. Yeah. I, I want to have as, as good of control. And then with containerization coming, mm-hmm. um, and, and, and I shouldn't say coming, it's there already, how do I increase my visibility and have control over what goes into that container, make sure it stays secure, and I have the visibility into the container? Yeah, and you and I have talked about that a couple times in the yes. past. And uh, I, I, Containerization is, is one challenge, which I think I think we can get our arms around containerization fairly well. It's the CI/CD world that, that so the continuous integration, continuous deployment world that gets a lot tougher because all of the tools we've ever used all depend on having the having some time to run against them, right? And and that doesn't necessarily live in a CI/CD world, uh, and that that'll be interesting to see as you know, how we how we adapt to that and move as quickly as our business wants to move from a security perspective, right? Right. Uh, any other priorities? That you had that you want to talk about it. Those are pretty good. Well, uh, you know, the other one that's a continuous one is just continuing to monitoring what's happening in the distributed denial of oh, service sure. world. 
Um, With them doubling in size every year, we have actually Charter probably has the most aggressive um, approach to protection of DDoS. Um, When when I got there, there was nothing. Um, And it was, you know, if you think about January of 2014 when amplification attacks were really getting big, um, we didn't have anything. So for years, I was really beefing up the architecture. And even as we acquired Time Warner, they really hadn't addressed it either. Mm. So we've been spending a lot of time. We have a very robust DDoS environment, but my team has to monitor every day looking for new ways they're doing DDoS. Yeah. You know, what protocol that we didn't think about that they might be using today. Um, you know, do we have the bandwidth? Can my routers absorb all that? And, um, you know, what can we as a sector be doing differently in standards to try to get this dirty traffic off our network sooner than later before it reaches the endpoint? So it's interesting. I'd love to hear your take on the question of where responsibility lies in a DDoS. You know, for a volumetric attack that's, you know, bandwidth heavy, I'm sure you guys think of that as kind of something you can handle when we start to get to you know, a super nuanced component-based attack that's that's not volumetric. It's, it's you know, hey, we're just going to do, we're, we're going to hit this, uh, the, make this request to this API a certain number of times. You probably don't have insight to help your customers with that because right. it's, it's not your APIs. Somewhere in the middle, there's a line. Do you have, do you have any feel for, you know, what you think of as your responsibility versus what's the customer's responsibility? Well, the FCC kind of lays out some of that for us. Hmm. Um, there's actually things I think we'd, want to do um, to help better protect our customers, but we do have limitations as to what we're allowed to look at from Mm. a network standpoint. We can look at the layer one, layer two traffic. We're allowed to protect our networks. So if we see anything that could potentially damage our network, we have full authority to take action on it. But when you start getting into the data layers, we're not allowed to really look at the data layers. We have to anticipate Mm. from the network flow what's occurring. Um, and it's this goes back to some old rules. Um, they want to make sure that um, we don't have a competitive advantage over, let's say, a Google or a Facebook. But I will say, I think they know a lot more about you. Um, but the Googles and the Facebooks of the world don't want us to have that ability. So there's been laws and restrictions put in place that limit what we can do. Um, if we didn't have those limitations, we could look at that traffic and better protect our customers at the application layer as well. What about, so I know some ISPs will have a, like an add-on service that's, you know, a higher level of DDoS protection. If you ha- if they opt into an additional service, can you at that point get that additional access? Because they've engaged with you not as an ISP, but as a service provider for this DDoS mitigation? Is that something that's an option? It it does have to be an opt-in capability. Right now, we protect our customers by default. The same way I protect my network is how my customers get protected. Um, You know, many companies are are making a um, lot of money providing managed security services as Mm -hmm. an add-on. Our CEO's view is he wants to provide the best service for the best value. So he doesn't want to charge for every little feature and functionality. So as I implemented this DDoS infrastructure, I was not just looking at my traffic. I was looking at my customer load traffic as well. Yeah. And how can I protect them? Now, there's certain customers we don't automatically protect. 
um, is, you know, your, our large enterprises. Um, they probably don't want me auto mitigating their traffic because they could be doing a big data center move that would look like a yeah. DDoS attack. Yeah. Um, and so for those customers, if they need our assistance, we'll assist them on demand. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not our practice to offer a whole lot of managed security services. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I want to take a left turn here, if you don't mind. Okay. T- take us away from Charter and just talk about some of the work you've been doing in the community. I know you've been uh, an active part in the new Women in Security Special Interest Group here in Denver, and I'd love to have you just talk a little bit about what that group is. We had Debbie on here several months ago, um, but there's been a couple meetings since then, and maybe you could just kind of update us on, for those who've never heard of it before, what is the Women in Security Group? And then for those who know about it, tell me about recent uh, news there. Sure. I'll be, I'm excited to talk about Women in Security. Um, actually, there were about six of us, um, and I have to give a lot of credit to Sarah Avery from Logarithm. Um, she's one that really kind of kicked this all off. But we came together and, and we all agreed there was a need to create a networking group within Denver. Um, and we called it Women in Security. It's actually a um, special interest group under ISSA. So if you're an ISSA member, um, you can come to our meetings for free. Um, we hold quarterly meetings. Um, and we literally just kicked this off last June. So this is still pretty new and fresh. Um, and um, we've had three meetings thus far. Um, our first meeting was really a get to know everybody. And what do you guys want? You know, the six of us came together, um, a couple of CISOs, you know, Debbie Blythe, Nancy Phillips from DataVale, myself, and, um, and then a lot of other people from Optive and, and Logarithm. Um, and we had our ideas, but we wanted to hear from the women in the community. And at our first event, we had almost 150 people show up. We, we were hoping for 40. Mm. And we were shocked when we had almost 150 people. Yeah, it was really, it, it was, I got to be there and, and see it. And it's just neat to see the, the, the need that's being addressed is obviously real. There's generally when a group starts, you know, it starts pretty small. And, and I'd say if you have 20 people come to a first meeting, that's, that's really good. Um, the fact that number one, you know, you guys were plugged in with ISSA and had some other, other ch- channels to kind of get the message out. So everyone knew about it and how many people showed up for that first meeting was really amazing. And, and right. Really, it really shows that there's a big need for this. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and we were kind of parroting off of a, there was a women's insecurity group in Kansas city and it's, it is a significantly smaller. Yeah. So we, what we were expecting happening happened in Kansas city that's what we were expecting here. And, and in fact, the need is much greater. Yeah. Um, our first meeting, we really did. We just were surveying, trying to get ideas. We had idea boards and mm-hmm. you know, women love that kind of stuff. <laughs> let, me, let me do my goal board. And, and, and we did a lot of surveys and we did a lot of networking to collect ideas. And then our second meeting, we focused on your brand. Hmm. Um, and why this is so important. We actually did two things. We had a guest speaker come in and talk about what is your personal brand. And then we had a CISO panel. So my peers and, and I got up and talked about what personal branding meant to us. And for women in security, this is really important. Um, you know, only 11% of the folks that are in security are female today. And, um, you know, and if you look at how we, we rejuvenate that workforce, we get a lot of our workforce as ex-military. Again, highly dominant male still at this point in time that are coming out of the military. So our feeder pools don't really um, change that dynamic or that number. 
And so, um, and we're finding that women aren't staying in the field um, because it can be sometimes pretty demanding, especially if you're in an operational role. Anyone who's in security operations knows that's a 24 by 7, always on, and sometimes can be pretty demanding if you're in a middle of a potential incident or, or something like that. Um, and so we tend to lose women in the field because hmm. they have a hard time balancing. I think the other big reason we lose a lot of women, and this is the thing I talk the most about, is that women generally don't come across as, conf- as confident as men do. Hmm. And there's a lot of studies uh, behind that. Um, there's a great book out there called The Confidence Code that I encourage all women to read. Um, but it talks about how, for example, if a man is looking for a job in security and he sees that he meets at least 40% of the requirements in the description, he's going to apply for that job. And when he goes for that interview, he's going to talk about how he meets all of those requirements. Hmm. If a woman sees that same job, she'll only apply for that job if she meets 80% of the requirements. And she'll go in and talk about what she doesn't meet. Hmm. So we all kind of set ourselves up for failure. And even how we conduct ourselves in meetings, is it's very common that a woman is the only woman in the room when we're dealing with some of these security issues. And we don't always come across confident with our ideas. Um, clearly, I don't have that problem. You've, <laughs> you've seen that at most of our CISO dinners. That's something I overcame a long time ago in, in my in my career, but it's something really women in security need to work on. Mm. So having that meeting around personal brand and, and then kind of sharing our, our brands as executives and how we went with it and how we make ourselves appear on Facebook and yeah. social media. And then our last meeting was so much fun. We just had a meeting this past week on September 14th. We brought in the Cyber Patriots yeah. from Highlands Ranch High School. And we had... Um, Four different tables where the students got to show us what they had learned. We had one student showing us how to use Wireshark. We had one um, one set of students showing us how they did offensive security because that particular Cyber Patriot team actually um, won some competitions at nationals. Mm-hmm. And so they we were talked sh- to them on the show, by the way. Yeah, and they so they were showing us how um, they defended it. They showed us how they did Windows security, Linux security. Um, and, and why that was so important. And there were girls in that group as well. But we wanted to really encourage these young people who are looking into security and really wanting to be in the offensive side, that there's this whole community out here that really supports them. Yeah. And how can we as local businesses create internships um, for these students? Ten years ago, if I could have a kid coming out of high school with these skills... That would be amazing. Yeah. Um, and now we actually have kids coming out of high school with some of these security skills. And now we as employers need to figure out how can we build that into our programs and get these folks into our world and onto our staff. So we're trying to do a thing with women in security. We're meeting quarterly. We're trying to balance soft skills mm-hmm. with technical skills. So this last meeting we had was hopefully teaching some of our own women how do you use Wireshark, giving them some technical skills. We also had several companies there that were doing recruiting. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do hope to plan to focus on mentoring also because um, we do have a lot of female executives that are part of that program that are more than happy to start mentoring some of the other women that are either entering into security or need someone to help coach them through yeah. 
through their career. It's been very exciting. So you can follow um, you can follow us by looking at the ISSA website. You don't have to be an ISSA member. You, you do have to pay a fee if you're not an ISSA uh, ISSA member. It's actually cheaper to just be an ISSA member and come to all of our events. Yeah. Um, and we'll we'll tell you about other uh, female security events that are going on, like Cyber Girls and and other things that are going on. Um, and then we also have a, a LinkedIn page, a Facebook page, and a Twitter page, Women in Security Denver. So you can follow us there too. Awesome. So it, it, one of the things you talked about a little bit was some of the why behind there aren't why, why there aren't as many women in security um, as there are men. And, and I I heard some interesting research. I'd love to bounce it off you and kind of think about it for a moment. Where the number of Women in it's not security specifically, but in technology and mm-hmm. IT, it's about eighteen percent of the workforce in IT is is women, um, and and if we go back to the number of women who are enrolled in undergraduate degrees in colleges around technology, it was about eighteen percent as well, and when they looked at high school, opt in um, attendance at technology stuff in high school, it was about eighteen percent as well. So there wasn't a, there wasn't a lot of dropping out along the way. It was a, it was just people not opting in. And which really, I think if that research is true, which I, which I suspect it is, I got a pr- pretty credible source. Um, it kind of tells us where we need to focus, right? Maybe we don't need to focus quite so much on um, the, the, at the end of the pipe, but at the beginning of the pipe. And how do we, right. how do we make technology an attractive field for, for young, for girls and, and young women to, to pursue as they think about their career? Have you guys talked about this at all? Any thoughts about how do we start funneling more folks, more more women into into that area? The, we, the women in security, we've been spending a lot of time talking about that. And that's actually one of the reasons we brought cyber patriots yeah. in. Because um, we actually do believe it begins in our schools. And um, getting the girls to change. I've, I've seen two things that really have a huge influence as girls are trying to decide where their career path is going to be. One, just what's their family setting. When you look at a lot of the girls who are going into technology, more than likely they have a parent that's in technology. Hmm. So that is helping. Um, and, and, and I would encourage other people that are in technology, if you've got a daughter coming up through the ranks, really, you know, not, don't just talk to your sons about it. Talk to your daughters about it, too. Um, because you have a huge influence. And then the schools that have these programs, like my kids, I'm an empty nester, so my kids are all grown. And um, when I look back at, at my boys, you know, they never want to do what their mom's doing, right? That, that would be uncool. Mm. And um, their teachers are huge influencers. And my kids never had a program like a Cyber Patriots or a Cyber Girls program. Yeah. Um, so it's, I think it's up to the schools. And so what we can do um, as being involved in the community, if we as technologists can start spending more times with the schools and help them build those programs, I think that's what we really need. And, and as women in technology, we need to really focus our time because those, those girls need to see us and see how successful we've been in our careers and see how we've been able to provide for our families. I've always been the breadwinner mm. in our family. And um, I think girls need to see that, you know, especially if they have a, a stay-at-home parent. You know, you don't have to be a stay-at-home parent. You can have a very successful career. I mean, I raised 
you know, my kids. I was the president of the PTA and had a, a, a great career in security. You, you can do it all if you're willing to take that all on. Yeah. So it does start in the schools. Did you see the the news a few months ago when Palo Alto teamed up with the Girl Scouts? Palo Alto Networks teamed up with the Girl Scouts to Saw release that the announcement. they call them cyber badges or cybersecurity badges. Right. And, uh, it you know, for those who are who aren't aware, um, you know, both Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts they have a, a badge system. You go do some work and you get a badge to put on your vest. And uh, so they're they've created uh, some badges around security. Mm-hmm. It's cybersecurity. Very very cool and and a way to to go earlier in the pipeline, right? That, I thought right. that was one of the most encouraging things that I'd seen. Uh, I'm sure that Girl Scouts is a very small percentage of the girls out there. I don't know what it is, 2%, 5%. I don't know. It's, it's very, I'm sure it's a very small percentage of girls, but at least it's something. And it's someone exactly. really going to the right place. So very cool stuff. Uh, well, I just want to say thank you for your work um, helping get women in security going and uh, helping organize and be part of that core team that's that's helping to do that i think it's something we really needed in denver we've we've known we needed it uh, you know i've been in, involved in the community here for seven years or something and i probably had 20 women over the seven years come to ask for something like this mm-hmm. and encourage them yeah you should go start it and and then not do it and then right. sarah avery all of a sudden went from i got this idea to like doing it three days later and right. making this whole thing you know pulling together a community to do it so also big kudos to sarah for for being that driving force she's absolutely she's relentless on this yes. stuff yeah. she is she's she's cute she's quite the taskmaster yeah, on all of this that's what we need sarah keep it up but we're having so we're having a lot of fun it, it was a little crazy in the beginning but the networking and the relationships that we're building um, we spend more time networking at these meetings versus having content, and the women really enjoy and appreciate that. Uh, matter of fact, we have a hard time getting people out of the building when the meeting's over yeah. because everybody's continuing to network, and I think it's been very, very rewarding. I've met, I've met hundreds of people that I probably would have never met before. So it's it's interesting that you talk about the networking versus education paradigm and, and you're putting it in the context of women and security, but from my perspective, this is applicable to everyone, that it's it's easy for us to see the tangible benefits of education, of, of going and you know getting trained on a certain technology. Um, it's a little bit harder to for us to see and get motivated to go do the networking. But if I'll just say my my experience has been um, if you want to impact your career positively, invest more in networking than anything else. The people you know, and it's not even just about who you know to get your next job. It's about the people who you meet, like like getting to meet you and hearing your experiences has taught me a lot about how to do my job better and make me better at the job I already have. And and then knowing people who I can call when I when something comes up at work. And, and you know, there's a network of a hundred different security leaders in Denver now that. One of them knows how to solve this problem that I'm running exactly. into. And who do I call? Just the networking. And, and don't do it. I'll say one thing. The big thing I see is don't do it just when you want to get a new job. Right. It, it doesn't right. sound, it comes across as self-serving and, and it's just not part of the community. Mm-hmm. You know, do it early. Get involved. You know, go get networked early. Meet people. Uh, offer to help. And then when you need help, they're going to be there to help you as well. Absolutely. I, you know, I, I, the main reason I do networking is I learn so much from my peers yeah. You know, the problems I'm facing, somebody else has probably already faced that same challenge. And why should I have to go through all the pains they went through and, and vice versa? So, yeah. if you know, I tend to openly share. I won't share information about my company specific, but, you know, well, have you thought about this? And, mm-hmm. oh, watch out for this. I get so much more from that. 
So, you know, if it ever does become a career thing, you know, at least I could leverage that. Yep. I can't say I've really used networking for my career. Most people do at some point. Well, you got your jo- job from an, at the uh, electric company from a boss who you used to work with. Right. And you I... Had- that's who you know, right? And when I applied for Charter, you know, I didn't know anybody at Charter. Because yeah. I came from telecom, which is a little bit different than cable. Sure. But they saw my name come across, and they're like, that's Mary Haynes? Well, we know her from all these committees in D.C. Right. I mean, I literally got a phone call that afternoon from HR saying, we want to interview, and I was on a plane the next day. Because they knew who Mary Haynes was. Because yeah. of my reputation in the um, telecommunications industry. Yeah. Um, and so you, you, you may be networking and not even know it, <laughs> yeah. you know, and it, it may yeah. come to play when you're trying to fill a position. Just help people. And you, it, it, exactly. I, I don't, I don't know if I believe in karma as an idea, but karma as the way it works here is absolutely true. You know, you help people get, they're going to know who you are and they're going to help you later on. Absolutely. All right. So we're getting a little bit short on time. Anything else you want to share with the community? Any, any pearls of wisdom or anecdotes you want to tell? Um, I don't know if I have any antidotes I want to share, but right now my philosophy is all around three things for my organization. Don't come to me with a solution unless it can automate something we're doing. It takes advantage of machine learning or it has artificial intelligence, mm. which we all know today most of that's machine learning. Yeah. Um, but as we look at initiatives going forward, um, I'm trying to move away from all the standard detect and alert and all the traditional ways we've been managing security. Um, we really need to look at security orchestration and how can we mm. move forward. I think we're going through a paradigm shift in how we're going to do security going forward and how can we be more proactive and preventative versus detecting and responding, which is where we really have been the mm. last 10 to 15 years. So those of you who can help me move in that direction. I think that's where we need to be. And if you're not there yet, definitely build some plans around that. Have you talked to the uh, to the local guys at, at Swimlane? We had, we had Cody Cornell. He's the CEO, founder of Swimlane. They're one of the security orchestration. Right. You know, that there's, there's only a few of them, like four or five, that have got significant mass doing orchestration. And they're local here in Denver. You should, you should right. get to know them. Good guy. I, I know some of my engineers have met with them. Yeah, so. Cool. All right. Yeah. Well, thank, Mary, thanks so much for your time. Hopefully we can catch up with you maybe next year and you can tell us what's changed Great. and where Charter's going. Well, thank you for inviting me, Rob. All Appreciate right. it. Thanks, Mary. All righty. Learn more about the Colorado security scene at colorado-security.com, where you can see information about local security groups, a calendar of upcoming security events, and learn more about Colorado equals security. Reach out to Alex and Rob by emailing info at colorado-security.com. Until next time, remember, Colorado equals security.